0: Welcome to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. This episode is part of the Raisina Dialogue 2021, India's annual premier conference on geopolitics and geoeconomics. The conference is hosted by ORF in partnership with the Ministry of External Affairs, Government of India. Hello and welcome to Raisena Dialogue 2021. We are living in times of a paradox of sorts, while all our collective knowledge, advances in science, and cooperation between nations has not been able to become a deterrent that is good enough for the virus that has turned our lives upside down presently. And yet, the technological advancements made by humans over the last couple of decades has ensured today that while all of us here on the panel are socially distanced, sitting in different continents, We can still continue to put our heads together to discuss the future in a region of critical emerging importance, the Indo-Pacific. The topic of discussion here today is the heart of growth technology partnerships in the Indo-Pacific. And I have with me an eminent panel here. And this should be a rather captivating discussion that will hold your attention, unlike what technology is accused of doing quite often, reducing our attention span. Joining me today on this discussion is uh, Zuned Ahmed Pollock, Minister of State for Information and Communication Technology, Bangladesh. Tobias speaking Ambassador for Cyber Affairs and Critical Technology, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade Australia. Mohandas Pai, Chairman, Manipal Global Education India, S. Paul Kapoor, Member, Policy Planning Staff state department professor department of national security affairs u.s naval postgraduate school united states erin watson lynn international relations consultant and former senior fellow Perth u.s asia center in australia the indo-pacific has emerged as a new theater of regional activity and robust technological partnerships At the same time, the heartland of global growth is also coping with enormous political and economic churn. Its future growth prospects will depend on its ability to create resilience and promote innovation and entrepreneurship. So let me begin with Zuneer Daimakpala. So what has the pandemic really taught us about partnerships, first of all? Are we any wiser, or does the pandemic have the capacity to churn out, in fact, the burst in us from cyber attacks on vaccine manufacturing facilities to richer countries and pharma companies still not agreeing to share vaccine technology for greater public good.
1: Thank you very much, Maha, for actually giving me the opportunity to speak at this very important platform uh, in this Rise in a Dialogue. And uh, this is the first time we are. 100% participating uh, by using online platforms and and we are adapting with this new normal due to this covid-19 situation from different different countries different different areas so i would like to give my heartiest thanks to the ministry of external affairs and uh, the observer research uh, foundation for organizing this uh, timely uh, initiatives and also Uh, Today's topic is very important for all of us because this coronavirus pandemic has been a difficult time for all of us. Our people and businesses have been hard economically and socially. uh, As physically movement interaction and the commerce uh, slowed down, global supply chains have been uh, in the spotlight since lockdown, Uh, disrupted factories, closed borders, and reduce the number of uh, passenger flights able to carry freight. This is resulting a significant overhaul of the uh, status quo. But uh, in Bangladesh, uh, since the very beginning of this pandemic, we are uh, having partnership uh, from the government side to the uh, private sector. At the same time, we are having partnership with uh, the uh, entrepreneurs, startups, and all of our technological innovative innovations and initiatives in our country. So we believe in partnership uh, strategy because uh, it is uh, inside the country, government, private sector and the innovators, startups and also academicians. but at the same time we have to be serious about the over reliance on single suppliers of goods critical uh, to national security comes with a high risk. And also, you know that everything is going to on the digital platform, our meetings, communications, business, education, health. So we have to be careful about the cyber security. So in Bangladesh, I can share that we have set up the computer incident response team. We are, uh, we are communicating with our local FinTech health uh, uh, platforms telemedicine, but at the same time, we need international cooperation, partnership and also the information sharing uh, mechanism because we cannot uh, uh, save our uh, uh, digital platform alone. We have to work together. So I would uh, like to request all of our Indo-Pacific member countries, nations and partners to work together to make a secure digital space for all of us. So I think this is the right time to collaborate and cooperate together. And the Rise in a Dialogue platform can be a really good place uh, to have more partnership and understanding between us.
0: Absolutely. Tobias, I want to come to you now, as India and Australia are in the process of taking forward their uh, tech partnership in the Indo-Pacific. Australia is also set to organize the Sydney Dialogue. Are these partnerships and dialogues uh, that are being fueled at the moment currently, are they to counter some particular forces in the Indo-Pacific? Are we looking at China particularly or is it genuine cooperation in the region?
2: So I think let me build on um, the previous answer, actually. What, what we've seen during the last 15 to 18 months is the fact that um, a recognition of quite how central digital technologies and those new and emerging technologies that build off of the infrastructure the cyberspace <laughs> provides, whether it's like quantum computing, AI, et cetera, et cetera, you'll know the list well, everyone listening as well, is that those technologies are not only central to our development, Um, economically and our social development but they're also being increasingly contested so we've seen during the pandemic how supply chains have been impacted and the realization that you know if we get stuck in a position of soft-source manufacturing or or purchasing uh, we then will stand to uh, miss out if you like on the opportunities of, of those technologies and we've also seen you know not the disruption of those technologies but how central they've become to geopolitics. And I think, you know, even if I just give you that statement, there's so much that feeds off the back of that. So, new and emerging and, and alternative partnerships are absolutely central. Um, I and the Australian government have always been a big believer in, you know, uh, working with uh, think tanks, universities, industry um, to try and find better policy and technical solutions to some of these issues. Um, it's the only way we're going to work ourselves out of. Um, or, or if you like, understand the landscape and create better solutions is through that multidimensional partnerships arrangement. So the Sydney Dialogue being one of those things like a, a quad tech network, which the ORF is part of um, in, um, in, in looking at um, how, how we work together on um, um, how you can influence, if you like, government discussions from outside are incredibly important. And then you rightfully say, you know, some of our new architecture we're putting in government to government, um, such as the Australian India Partnership on Cyber and Critical uh, Technologies is vital because it's looking at how can we stimulate joint R&D in these areas? How can we ensure that we're working in partnership around the region to... Um, enhance others' abilities to take advantages of critical and emerging technologies as well. So I think, you know, what are the watchwords here? It's partnership, it's flexibility, um, and it's being able to mobilise those efforts quickly and efficiently in order that we can take advantages of the outstanding opportunities that do exist. So for me, in my heart, this is still a story of opportunity rather than um, you know so much of the risk that we know are out there and we know they're a big problem but this yes. is still fundamentally an opportunity story and for the indo-pacific to drive forward okay right. the
0: question really is whether these opportunities are being driven because of a fear or uh, an understanding that there is one player in the region that could uh, become overarching as paul kapoor i want to bring you in here many believe that the obvious tech race that we are talking about in the Indo Pacific, is being driven by competition between the US and China. In that context, how will it benefit other countries in the region if the idea is so narrow in its origin, relying largely
3: on
4: private? <coughs> well, thanks, uh, Maha, and thanks to ORF for, for the invitation. Uh, I'll, I'll say that my, my comments here reflect only my own opinions. Uh, and I'm, I'm not with policy planning anymore I was, but I'm now uh, just just wearing my academic hat. So speaking uh, purely for myself. Um, I think that the technological race, as you put it, between uh, China and the US, uh, it's not just garden variety, economic competition. Um, it's driven to a large extent by a recognition that um, you know there is a problem with uh, technology security and that the uh, equipment and software, um, coming from China may compromise uh, telecommunications and data networks and um, that would make them vulnerable, frankly. And this of course is a concern, uh, especially with regards to burgeoning 5G networks. So staying away from, you know, if, if you talk about that competition and, and, you know, what the US would like to see, if we stay away from, let's say, um, Chinese 5G, that's not just going to benefit the United States. Uh, by uh, undermining an economic uh, rival or even a strategic competitor. Um, but it will benefit, I think, the region uh, and regional states by protecting them from uh, the possibility of compromise. Right? And that will benefit the U.S., right, which doesn't want to see uh, the Indo-Pacific uh, data networks um, be insecure. But it's, again, not just a narrow U.S. interest. It's, it's something that I think everybody uh, would benefit from. Um, if the United States were successful here. And, you know, I think that's going to require the U.S. to do a, a number of things, uh, among them uh, exposing instances where there, where there is uh, corrupt Chinese behavior, such as coercion or illicit subsidies uh, to customers, also helping to ensure that the costs of, uh, of um, uh, finding alternatives to uh, Chinese technology are manageable for uh, states in the region and that they're able to deploy substitutes, and also embedding 5G and and other tech cooperation in broader cybersecurity uh, efforts between like-minded states. Um, But again, I I think if the US is successful in this effort, the benefits are going to be widespread in the region, and it's not just going to be limited to the United States, even if there is an element of uh, US-China competition in this. So I'd say uh, everyone's got a stake uh, in this project. All right.
0: So I'll take that bit with the Later on, Uh, but I want to bring in Erin Watson over here. Erin, You know, under the present conditions of competitive rivalry, it appears costs are not the determining factor anymore for technology. Uh, There are other factors playing on countries minds, for instance, uh, increasing concerns with regards to implications of technology for governance, geopolitics, uh, data protection, national security. Do you think ultimately this is what is going to determine uh, the future game, if I can put it that way, in the Indo-Pacific?
3: Excellent question and Maha, thank you so much for for having me here and, and to ORF as well. Um I think just to Go back quickly on something that's already been talked about is one of the great things about this dialogue is that it brings people together from so many different regions and here in Australia we can be very focused on that China-US dynamic where Ryzena actually does bring in countries from the African continent, countries from the Latin American continent so we can really broaden our view on all of these things that we're talking about. But with regards to those decisions from business, what I'm seeing is I do a lot of work, um, often on behalf of the Australian government with Southeast Asia and young entrepreneurs and innovators across the region. And while for us sitting here as as analysts and um, scholars and and government representatives, we think about security, we think about geopolitics. Those young people across the region are not thinking about that. They're thinking, they are making those decisions when it comes down to cost. They're thinking about ease of partnerships, they're not thinking. Oh, I don't want to collaborate with um, with China or other countries in the region. So I do think that this is where perhaps we see this disconnect between what's going on in the business community and what's going on in the security um, realm. And I think we see that. You know, Tobias might um, be able to answer that well for us as well. We see that in the business commu- in the big business community in Australia. At the end of the day, we make money working with China, and that means that Australia has a, I guess, a risk in terms of its um, diversification, current commercial uh, diversification, because we're not working in with countries like Indonesia, with countries like India, other countries across Southeast Asia, and so on. But I think that's at the end of the day, business doesn't look at the world through that security lens. Perhaps increasingly, I think technology will drive that more but largely it has and and particularly for australia where education education we've seen impacted by covid 19 but at the end of the day sending coal and iron ore from a ship from up in port headland you know that's going to be a bottom line decision it's not about um tech transfer or anything like that so it's it i do think that there is that disconnect between the two the two areas business and um security all
0: right I think the best person to answer, that would be Mohandas Pai. Does that disconnect exist? And uh, is Erin right when she says that uh, the business side will look at costs first, not perhaps so much uh, uh, going to the realm of geopolitics or security? Or has that changed over the last one year, especially during the pandemic?
5: Well, I think uh, business always looks at making money, increasing revenues, increasing market valuation, etc. That is business for you. But business has become cognizant of the risk that is there in the digital revolution. Ma, please remember, after COVID, suddenly the world went digital. The great majority of people are connected together on the network. The COVID-19 pandemic showed the world how vulnerable everybody is. At the same time, how interdependent you are. The supply chains are interdependent on China. China shut down in February last year and the world came to a standstill. 24% of global manufacturing is from China, right? So now I think business is looking at it in a very different lens and saying, how do we diversify? How do we make sure that we work together? What was scary for India was 62 percent of our digital territory was conquered by the Chinese apps. Luckily for us, you know, we, our government banned the Chinese apps and opened it up. And there's a sudden burst of innovation, about 10 billion dollars of capital had come in from China to buy into our startups in a very big way. And I think that was very dangerous because, you know, we are never sure where the data from these startups were going, maybe going to China, because China is a leader in the digital era, possibly will overtake the United States maybe into three to four years in artificial intelligence and all of their issues. So I think business has become very cognizant. And today, if you look around the world, business is very careful and very, very worried about the rare earth situation. Where are they going to get the lithium? Because China has the world's largest quantum of rare earth, silicon chips. The world is short of silicon chips we used to say that data is a new oil now chips are the new oil because you are coming into the 5g iot revolution and you require silicon chips and the biggest silicon chip manufacturer taiwan is off the chinese coast and there is a problem there in terms of security and every country including the united states is over dependent on chips coming from asia and what about all the electronic devices what about the iphone everything is made in china so i think the radar, silicon chips Data sovereignty has become an issue because today China has a firewall. The United States has the world's data sitting on it. The NSA of the United States can access all the data very easily by a subpoena because, you know, they have the law on the side. Cyber security has become a big issue because, like you said, Maha, you know, we saw in the Covid times some cyber security attacks against the vaccine manufacturers. Right. And we know where it comes from. One particular part of the world is, you know, we can see it on the screen if you look very carefully. So I think it's extremely important business looks at it very dispassionately, diversified supply chain, looks at different kinds of different flows of capital from various different countries, and the old ways are gone. Yes, young startups, young people do not understand this. For them, what is important is grow, 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 business, market valuation, do everything else. I mean, that's perfectly right. But for the rest of us, we need to worry. And major businesses are extremely worried, and they're coming out of their own strategy. So we require a new normal in the digital era. And I think the Indo-Pacific is the right way to have a partnership among all the countries to make sure that our vulnerability as a group comes down and we are together and we are adequately protected from all dependence on any one
0: big country. But uh, Zuneer Darmad, I want to bring you in over here. Does that give governments then a greater handle in trying to dictate terms to the industry? And that might not go well for uh, the industry at large.
1: Uh, I I would say government should uh, play as a facilitator's role. Uh, We don't want to regulate very strictly, but at the same time, what uh, the other panelists actually um, emphasize on the data protection, localization, sovereignty, and also the uh, jurisdiction. Uh, of the data usage and uh, definitely privacy is a very big issue. So government cannot actually allow any company or any uh, any other uh, outsider to take uh, their citizens data. Today, uh, businesses have assets in digital form and uh, they are deeply connected to the global technology networks. So uh, we have to actually Uh, encourage our innovators, our startups to do new uh, businesses, but at the same time, privacy and uh, data protection regimes in the Indo-Pacific region range from countries that offer strong constitutional protection of privacy rights uh, to those that do not provide explicit recognition. Almost uh, every country in this region are facing the same problem because uh, big giant like uh, Google, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, Oracle, they are taking all the data, even Alibaba or uh, this kind of uh, e-commerce entities, they are taking uh, our uh, citizens data to their data center. So I think this is the right time to discuss and take the decisions from the government side, how we can actually protect our citizens' data, government data, uh, sensitive data, and how we can protect our citizens' privacy. I think uh, we should uh, come to a a decision like uh, how European Union has introduced their GDPR. In Australia, we have seen how they have actually introduced Their data localization law. I think we can actually learn from those examples and uh, we should actually take uh, our individual governmental initiatives to protect our citizens data and privacy at the same time our national security.
0: So while there was some amount of uh, discussion on that in Australia, I mean, not exactly related to this, but the fact that uh, news media outlets should get their uh, fair due from some social media giants, that triggered a debate about uh, data protection as well. How is that aspect being woven into the larger geopolitical as well as uh, data protection laws that many countries are looking at?
2: Sure. Look, if I may, I just wouldn't mind um, just coming back a little bit to this question of, you know, um, individuals and their concerns over, you know, security and economics and um, also the private sector. I think, you know, we've got to be very careful about kind of saying there's a block called the private sector that think one way, there's a block called government that think another way. What we have are big multinational companies that often have as much leverage as certain states in terms of what's Mm. going on in the digital environment, if not more. Um, And some of those choose to um, use that power well. (laughs) Um, Some of them use it not so well. Um, I would say that in that security dilemma, something, and I don't want to dwell on it because we've had a long discussion about 5G, but the whole discussion in Australia around There are certain things we can do as guidelines from government, certain legislative measures we can put in place which help drive market decisions um, so that they do consider security. That is something government can do. And then the market can decide on the basis of that legislation what decisions it wants to make. And if you do that early enough, I think, in the innovation cycle, then industry has a a good signpost for how it then innovates around that legislation so it can then be leading. So, you know, in 5G right now, Australia is in a great position to be a real 5G hotbed um, of innovation cycles. And I know that's where you know our industry is looking to position itself. So, you know, there are things you can do where security decisions do have an economic benefit as well. So I think it's it's really interesting. And and, and yes, of course, um, many individuals just want to use the online environment for their own benefit and are not too concerned about security. But there are also a lot of people who are very concerned. And that relates to, you know, people's awareness of the value of their data, data privacy, and seeing these other pieces of legislation come in from the likes of the EU that certainly helped raise that awareness with members of the public. Um, Could could everyone be a little bit more savvy about how their data is utilised and the realities of what's going on their data? Absolutely, of course, there's more um, that we can do. You mentioned the media code and certainly that was um, a a strong move from our government to say that, you know, essentially um, having independent media sources that are paid for is a really valuable and important part of a a working liberal democratic nation therefore we need to ensure that uh, media outlets are rewarded for the independent media sourcing that they provide Um, and you saw that blow up in the international media cycles and other countries now studying our legislative measures to see if it's something that they might like to follow but that also signposts that you know we are at this tipping point if you will We've seen this incredible growth of multinational digital media companies, not media, sorry, digital companies growing exponentially. Um, and now it's, it's almost the catch up phase. And I think the really important bit we've got to think about here as governments and as, as, as any of us who are in the digital environment is thinking well, what are the kind of values now that we want to position in terms of how we Um, um, not govern, that's not the right word, but how we guide the digital environment in the right way so that it keeps on being a benefit um, rather than some of the alternative models that we're seeing emerge. Um, And this is where if you look at the geopolitics of tech now, the values discussion around tech innovation cycles, tech development, and how tech is absorbed into the global economy is absolutely vital because there are certain trends that if allowed to continue in this critical emerging technology environment, if they continue along the way, which is has more of an authoritarian bent on them, um, then, you know, it does lead to some societal outcomes that I think we have to be very wary of. And that's certainly something that we're in tune with um, in Australia. Um, and we'll, we'll soon be producing an international cyber and critical tech engagement strategy, which will just give anyone an understanding of what it is Australia is trying to achieve in that environment and how it's going to go about doing that.
3: Thank you
0: for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.